It's been a while since I did an episode about sports analytics, right? And you know it's a field I love, so let's do that. For this episode, I was happy to host Essan Bokari, not only because he's a first-hour listener of the podcast and spreads the word about it whenever he can, thanks a lot, Essan, but mainly because he knows baseball analytics very well. Currently Senior Director of Strategic Decision Making with the Houston Astros, he previously worked there as Senior Director of Player Evaluation and Director of R&D. And before that, he was Senior Director at the Los Angeles Dodgers from the 2015 to the 2018 season. Among other things, we talked about what his job looks like, how Bayesian the field is, which pushbacks he gets, and what the future of baseball analytics look like to him. Essan also has an interesting background. As you'll see, he's coming from both the psychology and mathematics departments. And indeed, he received a PhD in quantitative psychology and an MS in statistics at the University of Illinois in 2014. And maybe most importantly, he loves reading nonfiction and spending time with his almost three-year-old son, who he read Bayesian Probability for Babies too, of course. This is Learning Bayesian Statistics, episode 49, recorded August 31st, 2021. Welcome to Learning Bayesian Statistics, a fortnightly podcast on Bayesian inference, the methods, the projects, and the people who make it possible. I'm your host, Alex Andorra. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Andorra, like the country, and reach a true Bayesian state of mind by visiting learnbasestats.com. That's learnbasestats.com. Do you want to support the podcast and unlock exclusive Bayesian swag at the same time? Then you can visit my Patreon page at patreon.com slash learnbasestats. Starting at 3 euros, you can get various benefits like the private MBS Slack channel, early access to special episodes, selecting questions for episodes, or even coming on the show. You'll get more details at patreon.com slash learnbasestats. Thanks a lot, folks. I'm very grateful for any support you can bring. Let me show you how to be a good Bayesian and change your predictions after taking information in. And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing, let's adjust those expectations. Wes Bayesian is someone who cares about evidence and doesn't jump to assumptions based on intuitions and prejudice. A Bayesian makes predictions on the best available info and adjusts the probability because every belief is provisional. And when I kick a flow, mostly I'm watching eyes widen, maybe because my likeness lowers expectations of tight rhyming how would i know unless i'm rhyming in front of a bunch of blind men dropping placebo controlled science like i'm richard Feynman. essen bokari welcome to learning bayesian statistics great to be here yeah i'm always happy to welcome a long time listener on the show that's always fun and also i want to thank you for being such a, a long time listener and also <laughs> recommending the show to other people including other guests like jj ruby was yes. there for episode 47. Yes, I tell all my uh, nerdy Bayesian friends about it because they have to listen to it. Yeah, that's great. Don't hesitate to also just tell it to all your friends. Maybe <laughs> they will become nerd afterwards. There you go. There you go. <laughs> no, that's great. And uh, also big fan of sports in general. So I'm always great to talk about sports and analytics and so on. I think you can guess that from some of the best guests. Episode two already with Chris Fonsbeck, who works for the Yankees. Episode 25 with Kevin Minkus, which was focused more on European football or soccer, as you guys call it. So yeah, really looking forward to diving into that. 
But first, as usual, let's start with your background. What's your story before sports analytics, Essen? Yeah, I did my undergraduate degrees in, in math and psychology at the University of Arizona. I then did a PhD in quantitative psychology at the University of Illinois. And along the way, got a master's in statistics. Mm -hmm. um, so after I finished my, after I finished school, I applied to you know, a lot of different positions and I ended up getting three different offers in three very different areas. So the first was an analyst role with a company called Sports Authority that is now bankrupt. So glad I did not take that one. The second one was a psychometrician role with the U.S. Department of Defense. And the third was a visiting assistant professor at the University of Illinois in the Department of Statistics. So had you know, one industry, one government, one academia, which was pretty cool to be able to choose between those three. I ended up choosing the uh, professor role at Illinois. I thought it would be a good opportunity for me to really get my feet wet and, and discover you know, what it'd be like to have an academic career. It wasn't something that I had set out to do when I entered my PhD, but I was open to that opportunity. I, I really loved teaching. So I spent that year in the Department of Statistics. I taught three courses there. I continued to work on publications and advised three undergraduate research projects, including one of his name is Drew Jordan, and he now works for the Detroit Tigers. So that's pretty cool. So during that spring semester, that would have been my second semester, I came across this job with the Los Angeles Dodgers as for senior analyst role. I had never really set out to work in baseball, but huh. the idea intrigued me. And when I found the position, it just seemed perfect. And I applied. I got a call back about a week later. The director of research and development there had a PhD or has a PhD from operations research. His name's Doug Fearing. It just seemed like a, a really good opportunity. It was really research oriented. That's what I, that was really important to me. And so once I applied to that and started interview viewing, I, I got hooked. It became, I put all my eggs in that basket. I really focused on trying to get that, that position. And unfortunately I did. I think the key to my story is that it's it's progressed in a very non-linear way. You know, you go and look at my resume or, or LinkedIn profile. It, it just looks like the smooth linear transition from you know school to working in sports and continuing within my career in baseball, but it's really been anything but. I mean, a lot of lucky bounces, as we might say in baseball. Um, so it's been a fun adventure and ride in, in this career, but it has had a lot of ups and downs and gotten some some lucky breaks to end up where I'm at. So that's been how I've, I've gotten into baseball. Hmm. That's when I mean, I mean, lots of people, uh, including me, just uh, stumbled upon <laughs> upon some right, opportunities right. that they didn't didn't foresee. Right. Like I think if you had asked me five years ago what I wanted to do, I would never have told you um, I want to work full time on patient statistics yeah, in, a, yeah. in a startup and do open source. I think I, I didn't even know about that then. But yeah, you're right that um, while prepping for the show, 
for this episode. I had the impression that um, you going into baseball and sports analytics was something you had planned for a long time, and that was yeah. very linear. Because right. you ended up doing that right after, like almost right after your your studies, right? That's a bit surprising to me that actually like it happened almost by, by chance. It really did, and had I not looked at that position at that period of time, I'm. It was only open for about two weeks, and you know I could easily could have missed that opportunity and probably not be working in baseball right now. So it's funny how life works. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I'm curious though, like you, you, you were already interested in baseball or not? Like, are you? A, do you define yourself as a as a baseball fan? Like, do you watch the games and so on, or is it like really something occupational in that like you find? You find yourself being good at what you're doing, but you you're not really a fan of, of the game, you know. Well, I think it would be very hard to work in baseball if you did not enjoy the sport, and that's probably true for for all sports. But hmm. baseball is a very long season, 162 games we play, and if you don't love the game, it's it's going to be hard to work in in the industry. My love of baseball has existed for really as long as I can remember. I had a very, very short career playing. I was I played little league for about six years, and that was about it because I couldn't hit. And so, in undergraduate and graduate school, whenever I had opportunities, you know, math courses or, or stat courses where you do a project, I tried to always I tried to use baseball data when I could. It was just something that I had interest in. You know, I followed. Sabermetrics through Moneyball book and through Tom Tango, Tom Tango's books and uh, Bill James. So uh, a lot of interest in the sabermetrics and that type of baseball research. And when I had opportunities, I'd do projects in school and that really helped me land a position. A key to any type of job is having experience. If you're applying for a job and you have experience, that's usually going to set you apart from those who don't have experience. Of course, you can't get experience without having ever worked in a, a job before. So for me, the next best thing, and this is true for other candidates who apply and want to work in baseball, is that I had research and I had work that I could point to that I had done and shown that as examples of and demonstrated work of me thinking about baseball problems. And in fact, you know, I mentioned Doug Faring, my supervisor at the Dodgers and, and how I was really research oriented. He had me do a job talk when I applied there. So I presented some work that I had done in the work that I tried to get published and, and ended up not getting published, but it was, it was in uh, using baseball data. I presented that When I came to interview, it was, it was very much like a academic job talk that you might give for an academic position. And if I didn't have that, you know, that experience or that that work to point to, it might not have gone as well for me. So it really helped out having that in my back pocket. Um, so I think that's an important part for someone who wants to work in sports and doesn't have the opportunity to take an internship or do work while they're in uh, school is to, to do research projects on your own or with an advisor like the student I had with Illinois, Drew Jordan, who did work with me on baseball data and went to graduate school at Duke 
and now is working for the Tigers, he, you know, he could point to work that he had done. I, th I think that goes a long way. Hmm. Yeah, I definitely agree. And that's also related uh, to also the value of open source. Yes. Yeah, I mean, having a, an open source portfolio is super valuable than if you're looking for any job in the data science world, I'd say. Yes, exactly. And so, yeah, you would define yourself as a baseball fan. Like, is it your favorite game, like, really? Or do you, like, is there an, another game you, you really like too, or even more, like ba basketball or, or soccer? Yeah. I know it's not... Uh, it's not very frequent in the U.S., yeah. but that happens. Uh, I mean, growing up, I, I liked probably the four major U.S. sports, which was football, hockey, basketball, baseball. But baseball was always my favorite. I did, you know, there are periods of time where I was really into football, really into basketball. But since I have you know, joined you know, the baseball industry, I have not paid much attention to the other sports and Baseball is always number one for me, so it wasn't that hard to give up the other sports. It's just hard to follow other sports when you're so hyper-focused on the team and, and the sport that you're in. I guess I have a passive interest in what other my other favorite teams are doing, but I don't really follow them. Not like I used to. Yeah, but you, you, still, you still enjoy like watching baseball and so on on your, on your free time. Like it's yeah, not, it's yeah, not yeah, yeah. reminding you of yeah. like, you don't have a work PTSD each time <laughs> to watch a baseball game during your holidays. Uh, well, I did work for the Dodgers in 2017 and then came to the Astros in 2019. And there was a little PTSD because the Dodgers lost to the Astros in the World Series. And when I interviewed hmm. with the Astros, I came to the stadium, which was the first time since... 2017 World Series and had some you know, memories there that I wanted to forget and unfortunately were brought back to life during my interview, but I've quickly moved past that. So yeah, hmm. for the most part, you know, still turn on the games when, you know, non-Astros games, when they're on TV, still watch, you know, like college baseball. I'll take my my son to to watch Little League. He's only he's about three years old, over three in a, in a couple of weeks. And if it's baseball, I'll watch it. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Okay. So that's great. And actually your PTSD went in the other direction than yes, what I had right. anticipated. Right. It was sports <laughs> going into work and not work right. going into sports. Exactly. So it's okay. Exactly. I, I definitely know the feeling though. Okay. I remember for the rest of my life, the, like the defeat of PSG in, in Barcelona. Uh -huh. I think it was 2017 too. Uh -huh. Hard year for, for a sports fan in, in this episode. Yes. <laughs> And PSG won 4-0 to Barcelona in Paris. And then second game, they lost 6-1 to oh. in Barcelona. It was like an eventful game. I think I slept two or three hours this night. <laughs> it was horrible, horrible. Yeah, yeah but sports tend to do that revenge. to us. Yeah, exactly. We got our revenge, though, last there year, so go. it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> and so do you have a favorite team or not? Like, uh, it's hard or... to choose a favorite or do you have a, a team that your heart is beating for? Sure. The team I'm, I'm working for will always be the favorite team. <laughs> Now, growing up, I was a Cubs fan, Chicago Cubs fan. Uh -huh. But once I started with the Dodgers, it, you know, the loyalties quickly switched. So hmm. it, it wasn't actually as difficult as I thought it would be. I remember the, the Cubs came into LA my first season there and It was, you know, completely rooting for the Dodgers. No, no inkling to root for the Cubs. Now, of course, the Cubs, for those who follow baseball, probably know that 
in 2016, my second year in baseball, they won the World Series. And I was that was a weird feeling because that was something I waited my whole life to see. And then they do it two years into my baseball career when I can't enjoy it. So go figure, right? Hmm. You know, it was also challenging to come to Houston, the team that beat the Dodgers in the World Series, but allegiance and switch really quick when when you're part of that culture, that that organization. It's it's really easy to root for the team that you're working for. Okay, that's interesting because like in my prior there was like because I, I'm a PSG fan since I'm a child, you know, mm-hmm. so I'm like if I worked for PSG mm-hmm. that that would be great. I'd love that. But working for, for one of the the enemies of the team like yeah. <laughs> in France it's more it's more Marseille or teams like that, although now PSG is dominating the championships so much that the the, the real enemies are outside of France, like Barcelona, for instance, yeah. there is a great, like it's starting to, to become one of the biggest football enemies of, of PSG. I would be like, like my prior would be, it would be very hard to work for Marseille or, or Barcelona. Mm-hmm. But it seems to be that it was your prior too, and that actually it wasn't like your prior wasn't very accurate that when is, the data that, came in. Yeah, that's spot on. Yep, my prior was exactly yours and it ended up being pretty <laughs> far from the truth. So the posterior has changed quite a bit. Huh, okay. I mean, that's super interesting. First, because you often hear like, you know, like for instance, you and Messi, like just went from Barcelona to Paris this summer and he was like the iconic Barcelona player. And so when there are big, like big changes like that, yeah, often you'll hear people questioning the loyalty of the yeah. new players. Yeah. So that's interesting to me because I'm thinking, oh, okay, then probably it's the same for the players. Like maybe the first few games, it will be a bit weird uh-huh. for Messi to really feel like a Parisian player, but a few weeks or months in and, and he'll really have a new loyalty to his new club. So that that's something that I would, that's actually also surprising to me because you often hear that like, oh, but then he will always be loyal to Barcelona before Paris, blah, blah, blah. Right. And I'm actually wondering whether you can apply that. I don't know, like maybe social, maybe social scientists do that, but like, you know, like football, like sports loyalties are huge. Like mm-hmm. it's really like you have people who have been raised in these loyalties for all their lives. And it's almost like partisanship in the, in politics. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering if you want to fight partisanship, maybe a solution is to like, let people go into other you know environments. Like, I don't know, go to meetings from the other party, Yeah, yeah. meeting people who are voting for this other party that you demonize and like witnessing that, okay, they are not as bad as you, as you imagined. And then, and then maybe that makes your partisanship a bit, a bit less strong, and in the end, you're you're more able to to see the situation from another perspective, which I I think in a democracy is always something helpful. But yeah, I'm wondering if there are the like there aren't interesting things to pick up for a social scientist from the sports world. Uh, you might be onto something. You might just be on your way to solving a lot of the world's problems right there with that, that type <laughs> yeah. of thinking. <laughs> to say the least. Yeah. <laughs> that make actually curious. If any uh, listeners in the, in the audience <laughs> know of any papers of, or like social experiments like that, uh, let me know that. That'd be something I'd be very interested in, in talking on the podcast. But... For now, we have to, to talk uh, 
But what you're doing, yes, and because time is flying by and I have so many questions for you. So maybe can you quickly define for listeners what you are doing nowadays? Like what, what is it like to work, to do the, the work you're doing? Sure. So I joined the Astros in 2019 as director of research and development. Mm -hmm. And I only spent a year in that role before I moved to uh, senior director of player evaluation and mm -hmm. spent a year in that role. And now I'm in my current role, which is senior director of strategic decision-making. And really I describe this as four areas that we focus. So it's long-term planning, education, innovation, and decision-making. So importantly there, you know, those four are all interdependent. And I guess the best way to describe this is to, to illustrate it. So if we have a new technology that we're thinking of adapting or adopting, the technology, you know, will arise in a number of ways. And it's, you know, largely driven by this innovation aspect of the department. And when we or looking into a new technology, we're, we're basically at a decision-making point where we can adopt the new technology in some way, whether it's full adoption or, or partial adoption or something of that sort, or we, we move on, right? And how we make that decision, you know, it has to be systematic, it has to be rational. And by rational, I mean that we are we're not only acting in ways that are that are empirically correct and favorable, but also acting in ways that are consistent with our previous processes to making decisions. And this is where I think, you know, probabilistic models can help guide decision-making. We have a lot of information that is just really full of uncertainty. It's often based off subjective opinions. So this is a, a way that we can systematically help decision-making is by trying to model a lot of these these decisions and use subjective um, opinions as best as possible. And another key part to this decision-making is the, the planning. So I always love a good quote and, you know, Dwight Eisenhower has a good one here that comes to mind. So plans are useless, but planning is indispensable. And really what he's getting at is that, you know, whatever plans we lay forth, you know, we're not necessarily supposed to stick to them, but the idea of planning and the, the practice and process of planning is how we are going to move forward with better decision-making. So when we think of new technology that comes in, we want to think of how does this fit into our organizational vision? How does it disrupt any current departmental plans? What are the opportunity costs if we invest in the space? So if we can answer those questions, try and understand those, those questions and more, we're going to, we feel like we're going to make the best decisions for the organization. And then finally, you know, if we assume that we adopt this technology, you know, the next steps are rolling out the technology and that's mostly driven by the planning side, uh, working with the different departments that are going to use the technology and then further innovation on how that technology gets used above and beyond what it's designed to do. And then finally, the last part is just the education piece where once we have this new technology, we need to educate the users on how it's used, what it can be used for, what information it's telling us, what information it's not telling us, as well as stakeholders outside of the area that it's being used, because there may be opportunities that we haven't thought about 
where this technology could really help them improve their own work. So I think this, this example illustrates the key aspects of the department and how it functions. It is very much focused on tomorrow and not today, which in many ways is fun for me, but in terms of like what's happening on the field today, I have less impact, less interest in that because my work is so much focused on 2023, 2024, and so forth. Okay, so it's like, so your job seems to be much more focused on on the long term than on the short term, right? Yeah, yeah. And okay. research and development is also very long-term focused. I mean, we're building models that are going to you know, make decisions over the long term, not necessarily in-game decisions, you know, not... You know, not who's starting in today's lineup against this pitcher, but rather what type of player do we want to select, sign, draft for making our team better this year and you know, future years. Hmm. Okay. There is very much that distinction in research and development from some of the other analytical work that's being done on the baseball side. Yeah, and I can clearly see an interaction here between like... Um The, the data-driven part, if you want, like especially on which players do we want to sign, which player mm -hmm. do we want to not renew, or stuff like that. And also that probably interacts with which players, with, like the strategy, like the overall strategy that probably the board, I don't know how it's structured, but like maybe the board of the club has a strategy of, okay, our company, our brand, we wanted to represent these values and and not these other values. So maybe some players would fit the team from a physical standpoint, but maybe not from a strategical standpoint or value standpoint. And then you have to merge these two worlds, right? Uh, kind of the data world and the prior, the domain knowledge world. So you see where I'm going with that, right? Yeah, exactly. So you know, our models will tell us a lot about what we call true talent and mm -hmm. how good we think that these players are and are going to be, there are factors that we can't or do not consider that do have an impact on the business side and what type of players and you know, ownership wants to bring in. You know, we have to work through. The best thing that we can do is just provide the information that we are able to capture and present the information as clearly and concisely as possible to help facilitate the best decision-making, but ultimately there will be other factors that come into play. I think mm, as long yeah, as we're definitely. doing our job to put the best information out there, we are doing the right thing for the process. Yeah, the competitive advantage that you are bringing on the table, whether on the pitch or off the pitch, is the quality of the of the models you guys are coming up with. Exactly. Mm, okay. And then this is used for, for decision-making. Yes. And so there, I mean... I'd love to work on, on these kind of, of models. That sounds uh, super interesting and definitely something that, for instance, in, in Europe, at least continental Europe, continental Europe is underutilized in, mm -hmm. in soccer. I mean, it's, it's pretty impressive how, how many low-hanging fruits there are on the analytics side. There's an orchard of low-hanging fruit. Yeah. There, there are yeah, many exactly. opportunities. It's, uh, it's really actually one of the most exciting parts of of the work is that there are just so many opportunities to improve decision-making, to improve yeah. you know, just the, the players. It's not necessarily low-hanging. Sometimes you need a, a really big ladder to get to the fruit, but there are a lot of opportunities there, and that's what's exciting. That's the challenging yeah. part. Right? Yeah, yeah. 
but management has to be willing to do that. Yes, that is key. Yeah, exactly. Right now in France, at least, um, it's not really <laughs> like, I know uh, data science is used uh, for marketing purposes uh, in the clubs, yeah. but not really yet on the on the player side, mm-hmm. uh, which, which is still influenced by mainly a lot of hand-waving stuff, you know, and very subjective assessment, which uh, have their value mm-hmm. if they are done methodically, mm-hmm. but can also clearly be improved and complemented by data-driven processes and, and models. So something I'm, of course, wondering, because like all we're talking about here in my head makes me think that all this environment is very, uh, is ripe for Bayesian statistics. So how much, like how useful are Bayesian stats here and how Bayesian or sports analytics in, in general, if you want? Well, first I'd say not Bayesian enough but there is plenty of use and there are some people that do it in the public in the baseball sphere. So Jonathan Judge is, is one person who has some work out there. And there is a professor at, I can't remember the university, but it's in Ohio. His name's Jim Albert. I think it's uh, Bowling Green. And he is a Bayesian statistician. He does a lot of work in baseball. He's written some books in baseball and analytics So publicly, there is work out there. I think that a lot of teams have seen the value of this probabilistic modeling and are embracing it. But my guess is that there's not enough embracing of it. So the bread and butter of of baseball analytics is is the projection models. And we're trying to forecast future performance under certain assumptions. Mm -hmm. And just the thought of projecting performance as a single expectation mm-hmm. as opposed to a distribution. For yeah. me, that's just asinine. It yeah. makes zero sense to, to do it that way. Just with that, there's plenty of use for Bayesian methods and in, in projection systems. And the general, you know, just the general concept of uncertainty is, is really important in what we do. And we really do a disservice if we try and uh, communicate these metrics without any sort of uncertainty. And it's, it's even worse when we do it to like three or four decimal places. So I think this is such a, an important part of what we do from the analytics side to provide information to the end users is communicating uncertainty. And you know, the short-term effect of communicating uncertainty is that it just might cause a little bit of confusion. It might raise a little, you know, an eyebrow or two. But the long-term effect of not communicating that uncertainty, you know, that leads to complete lack of buy-in, low confidence. I mean, that is, that's far, far worse, right? So for me, whether it comes from Bayesian methods or not, ideally it's for, through Bayesian methods, but you know, the most important part is that we are communicating uncertainty and we're, you know, we're articulating what that implies. Hmm. Actually, I'm curious about the... Um... Like who is most interested in in what you're doing in your department, and and also do you get some pushback from traditional stakeholders in this domain that that had kind of the monopoly mm-hmm. what you guys now are mm-hmm. doing? So I'm thinking about the the scouts, the business side, and any other services that I ignore about. But yeah, I'm curious about all that. Well, one of the I think most special things about the Astros is that we really do have buy-in from the bottom up. You know, the players love the information. The scouts love the information. Our player development, our coaches, 
our coordinators, they love this information. That doesn't mean that they take it without any pushback. And sometimes there are thoughtful questions, but sometimes it can be less thoughtful, I guess. (laughs) But really the entire baseball operations at the Astros has an interest in data. And that's pretty remarkable. It's a huge advantage for us. I'd say that most of the pushback comes from misunderstanding. And that in turn is often due to poor communication on the people delivering the information. So that's why I think that, you know, going back to the, the last point about uncertainty, you know, just communication in general is just really important for the work that we're doing. I mean, if, if we're not communicating that well, if they're not understanding what it, what the metrics mean, what they don't mean, uh, then, we're, then we're failing. I mean, it, it's a lot more for us to, to do. It's not just making models and, and putting out the numbers there, but being able to communicate and educate is really maybe the most important part of what, what we're doing. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, definitely having worked in, in big organizations that try to ramp up on the data side, having buy-in from the most important uh, stakeholders is crucial. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that like, and I don't mean buying, buying by wanting yes men, but you know, people who are interested in what that can bring, but are also thoughtful about the limits of what models bring to the table, which, I mean, <laughs> we're the first to, to tell it here, uh, models have a lot of limitations, but uh, compared to the baseline, just not using models has a lot of limitations too. So the question is whether the new limitations are better or not than, than the previous ones. Right, and it, it is just so important to understand what they are. That's the thing, without using models, we just assume that there are no limitations and that we can, you know, mm. we can make decisions unequivocally. And, and that obviously, as you, you know very well, that's just not true. And again, like the short-term effects of describing limitations, it can cause a little bit of confusion. It could maybe even create some doubt. But in the long term, that transparency is just so much more important because it builds the trust between the stakeholders and us on the analytics side. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also the way to learn and improve. Exactly. <laughs> because when you have the model in in you are a bit harsh on it because each mm-hmm. time it fails, uh, you try to improve it. Well, exactly. at least you improve it. Whereas like we have these, you know, this tendency as, as human to be harsher when machines fail than when human fail. Right, right. And it's like, like uh, uh, self-driving cars, like each time they have, they have an accident, like everybody is like, oh, see how dangerous that is. Right. <laughs> Look at the number of people having right. accidents while not driving a self-driving car. Uh-huh. It's incredible. And so, yeah, we definitely have that bias, but I mean, then you can, you can use that bias in, in your advantage, you know, like getting some feedback and criticism that is useful for your model uh, helps you to, to improve it. And at least now you have uh, something that you can track. Whereas before, you just re- if you're just relying on human judgment that uh, whose performance is not really assessed, then you don't really know what you do because you never really took stock of what you did before. Right. Yeah. And surely that's that's something I'm I'm super interested in. And I listened to to another podcast, of course, because I listen to about, about billions of podcasts. Uh, this one is called uh, Choiceology by uh, Kathy oh, Milkman. Yes. Mm-hmm. And there was an episode about that, about like this bias, like, you know, I don't remember 
how it's called, but how humans tend to be harsher on, on machines than on humans mm -hmm. when they fail. And so one of the solutions to harness the power of algorithms for decision making, because algorithms tend to be on average much better than us to make decisions, but also to get buy-in from humans is to at least give the illusion of control to humans who yes. are not doing like making the models you know uh -huh. and it's like i think the example was or I, I think it was even an experiment like you give a placebo button in the self-driving car to people mm -hmm. where they are supposed to like be able to control the car with this button like they can make the car a brake if they push on that button uh, slow down if you want mm -hmm. you can slow down the car with this button and i think it's a placebo button but just doing that and giving the illusion of control makes people more trustful of the choices of the algorithm uh, because they think that they have control or if you can't do a placebo you can give control over a part of the model that's not the core of the performance of the model and maybe it will make the model a bit less efficient but you will get more buy-in from the people who are not involved in the data stuff and don't really understand how that works. And for them, that's esoteric and that's magic. And so that helps you in the end improve the decisions because you can still use a, a model, whereas before you couldn't. Yeah, no, that's spot on. I mean, I think having, allowing the stakeholders to have input and being able to, if you think from the scouts perspective, like the scouts are providing data and that information is is extremely useful. So, you know, explaining that to them and communicating that to them, that's going to go such a long way in, in the buy-in of the model because they know that they have an impact in how the model decides which player is good and which players aren't. Yeah, and that's where the Bayesian framework is super valuable, right? Mm -hmm. Because then you can include the priors mm -hmm. that you get from the scouts into the model, exactly. which is amazing. Also, I'm guessing that some scouts are better than others, you know, you may have like super forecasters in, in yes. the scouts. Yes. You know? So that's also important to, to take stock of. That's fascinating. I understand why you love doing that. <laughs> Let me show you how to be a good Bayesian. Hello, my dear Bayesian folks. I'm happy to tell you that today's episode is brought to you by another podcast, namely the Trending Tech Podcast. Yes, that is a podcast-ception. Lately, they have covered starlings that helped create high-speed networks and horses that can train executives to be better leaders. They have seen what augmented reality looks like through next-gen contact lenses and how artificial intelligence is changing healthcare, your shopping experience, and even Audi cars. So if you're looking for a new podcast to listen to, and if you've ever wondered how technology is changing all of our lives, then check out the Trending Tech podcast at trendingtech.io. It's critical, but not all serious. So now I'm curious about how you communicate your results to the different populations mm -hmm. in a club. Like maybe sometimes you even have to communicate that to the coach or to the players. And I'm guessing you don't do that the same way as you do with the uh, business team or the marketing team or the scouts or even your own team. So how does that go? Yeah, I think you probably have gathered that. I think communication is just a really important part of the job. And really, I think the, the first and best thing to do is to establish the lines of communication. So create a relationship with the scouts, work to understand the language that they use to communicate their results, 
just begin by getting to know them as as people. Mm. I think that can go a long way. So what are their you know, what are their interests outside of baseball? Do they have spouse, kids? You know, how do they get to where they are in their career? Where do they want to go in their career? And then you start to focus on the work. Like what do you look for when you're evaluating a player? What tools could help you evaluate these players better? Now you're starting to get into where R&D and the analytic work can help them improve their jobs. And once you've established that, now we're talking on the same terms, right? We're working toward the same goals. So building that, that line of communication, that trust, that goes a long way. And communicating the results and tailoring it to what you've learned about their needs, the individuals, the department, and the department as a whole, that, that's just secondary, right? That comes naturally from those previous discussions. So in particular, I think scouts are really quite adept at understanding uncertainty and outcomes. I mean, they're, they're working with players, scouting players that are in high school and college, and they understand that there are a lot of different ways that a player's career can unfold. So they, to a point, understand that a distribution of outcomes is something that is expected, and that's how they think. And what we can do is instead of like providing, for instance, a continuous posterior distribution of you know, these outcomes of the player, we might instead chunk it into these discrete values that the scouts better understand. So this is kind of to what your point of, of having them have some, some skin in the game. Scouts love the scale that is, they call the 2080 scale. That's how they, that's their lingual. And, you know, any statistician can understand it because in, in theory, all it is is a normal distribution mean 50 standard deviation 10 but they use it discreetly. So 20, 30, 40, sometimes they'll use the fives, but it's discrete. So if you can break up that, you know, that posterior distribution into these different grades, probability of being a 20, probability of being a 30, probability of being a 40, et cetera. Now all of a sudden you're speaking their language with the language that we have, right? And it really connects very well with them. They understand exactly what we're saying to them. They they know it, it. It clicks instantly with them. So, you know, the way that you you figure that out is by first establishing a relationship with the people that you're working with, getting to know them, and then it really just kind of comes naturally. That to me is where I found the most success. And again, like yeah, that's how you tailor it to the different groups of people. Hmm. Yeah, and like basically help them understand how this is a new tool that can help them and improve instead of something that's there to replace them. Exactly, right. And, and also to just give them orders or stuff like that. Right, right. It's not, we're not doing this to tell them how to do their job or even to do their job. We're doing it to help them improve at their own work and improve the decision-making for the organization. Yeah. And I mean, I think you couldn't even do that if you wanted to, right? Like, <laughs> couldn't come up with a model where right. you would be super sure about, oh yeah, you should do that. You're really a, a dumbass to not have done that before. <laughs> I mean, right. It's like, welcome to the real stats world. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it's super interesting. And that communication, you know, helps them improve at their own jobs. Like they're, they're going to yeah. learn from the models and improve at their own evaluation. So yeah. Everyone wins, right? Yeah, and also I think with time, like it's gonna be more and more 
in the custom, you know, to have the data team part of the just of the football team, basically, or the baseball exactly. team or else. Yep. Like, I mean, I was saying that analytics is not very widely used from a, a macro level in the institutions of football clubs, for instance, in continental Europe, mm -hmm. but they are more and more used at the micro level. Like you have a lot of players who have their personal personal trainers and they are super interested in the in the data that they can gather on the field while they are playing a game, uh, they are connected everywhere and so on. And so, I mean, I think it's just a matter of time when uh, this micro level in analytics is going to go to the institution level. So just takes a bit more time depending on the on the society you are in. I mean, the US, the, the US society compared to the French society is usually more data-driven and, and data-prone. So I mean, I'm not, not surprised by that. Yeah. And, and one thing that I think this is already pretty well known, but I mean, the pandemic really highlighted just the need for understanding yeah. you know, quantitative information just for the general person, right? Like it's it's not just a, a niche thing anymore. Like you really have to understand what these numbers and what the models are telling you. You don't have to understand the models themselves, but you have to understand what this output is telling us because it is It is you know, a life and death situation, yeah. literally, how you interpret that information. Yeah, yeah. Well, at least if your goal is to understand whether what you believe is true or not. <laughs> yeah. That's an assumption. Yeah. Yeah, that's an important But, one. <laughs> yeah, but definitely and, and fascinating topics that we are actually going to talk about with uh, Sir David Spiegelhalter that uh, will oh, be interviewing nice. in a few days. Very Looking forward to that. Yes. He did a lot of stuff about uh, about COVID and, and misinformation around that. So fascinating conversation coming soon. And actually, like uh, for you, when you communicate these results, are there some concepts, some specific concepts that are particularly difficult to impart to the different stakeholders? Or how is this going? I think maybe one of the most, we often have a trade-off with interpretability and, you know, Accuracy, right? I mean, oftentimes more accurate you know, out of sample predictions are going to come from models that are going to be less interpretable. So there is a trade off with, with that. But if there are always ways that you can do it post hoc and try and show like how manipulating this one parameter changes the end results. So being able to provide tools like that can go a long way so that the whoever's using it, whether it be the coaches or the scouts, can play around with these tools that we provide them to get a better understanding of, okay, well, for instance, we, if this player increases his velocity by one mile per hour, what does that look like for his, what we call pitch grade, like how good his pitches are? And so building those tools can really help, even if the model itself isn't directly interpretable, those type of tools can make it interpretable to some extent. But I think one of the more Difficult things to explain are interactions. It can mm. be really challenging to yeah. to explain that to coaches and to, to scouts. Yeah, but that's definitely confusing. I mean, yeah. even for yeah. statisticians, yeah. interactions are hard. So. Yeah, I'd say that's probably the, the most challenging one. And the, the tools that you can build don't necessarily help all that much with with that problem. There are plenty of interactions that intuitively make sense. But when you get into the more complex of three, three order interactions, I mean, it can be really quite challenging to explain those. Yeah, so far that's not surprising that these kind of uh, topics are demanding more explanation. They are not trivial topics and 
but they are important. Yeah, we have a really, I mean, our coaching staff, our scouts, they are inquisitive. They want to know. They, they're, they're not asking because they want the challenge. They're asking because yeah. they are genuinely curious. So Curious, yeah. Right. yeah. Which is an excellent quality to have. Yeah, yeah, that's the best interactions I have too, like at PyMC Labs when our clients are super curious like that. Yeah. It's super interesting yeah. because they are super enthusiastic about, about learning all the time, you know, and when they get things wrong, they don't get either disappointed or angry at you. <laughs> they actually take that for uh, as something positive because they right. learned something. And we, when we get something wrong, they don't get angry either, <laughs> you know, because they know it's hard. So, I mean, that's often the best uh, mm -hmm. environment to, to work in and and to grow actually out of out of all that. Yeah, I completely agree. We feed off each other. Yeah, exactly. So maybe do you have the favorite model or experiment that you worked on on this topic to that you can share with us? Um, sure. So I I can't go into all the details, but in general, hierarchical models are are just really great because they they allow us to do something that is really important in the baseball world, and that is easily model individual differences. And that has a lot of power for us. You know, we're talking yeah. about, you know, we've already talked about projecting players. And if we just assume all players, for instance, age the same, that's a rather hefty assumption. So hierarchical models allow us to tease out some of the individual differences much more easily. And that can be really powerful. Also, additionally, I think it, it really does a, really do a good job of handling data that are systematically missing. And what I mean by that is you have populations of players that we have no data of this type on. Where, for instance, like our own players, we have a lot more data on than players that are playing for other teams. So that can be a real challenge on the modeling side. And hierarchical models have really helped with trying to solve that problem. Hmm. Yeah. I mean... I definitely share that hierarchical models, incredible. <laughs> yes, but yeah, that's it's, really great. It's high on the the hierarchy. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> good one. But yeah, yeah, I, I, I mean, I always love working on hierarchical models. I, I use that a lot for electoral forecasting, and so that's always uh, really awesome. Another method I, I love are. Gaussian processes. Mm -hmm. They never, they are super hard to understand. They are wild beasts. So that's also why they are powerful and interesting. <laughs> so I always love using those. Yeah. And we, we've used those on numerous occasions and they can be quite powerful. So also a good tool to have in that tool belt. Yeah, exactly. And talking about that, actually, like quite quickly, but um, I didn't ask you when you were introduced to Bayesian stats, why they were attractive to you. And what's your favorite package or programming language when you work on a Bayesian model? Yeah, so let me just preface, maybe kind of an awkward time to do it an hour in, but I'm not a Bayesian statistician, but I would consider myself a Bayesian enthusiast. <laughs> I can't recall the first time I came across Bayesian methods, but I would have to guess it was in graduate school. I mean, my undergraduate coursework, if I recall correctly, had five stat adjacent courses, so not a lot. Three of those were in psychology um, and two in the math department. So it wasn't, at the time, Arizona didn't have a statistics department, but my focus in the math side was probability and statistics. So that's where those two came from. So certainly 
came across Bayes' theorem at some point as an undergraduate, but not Bayesian methods. But, you know, this is kind of you know, somewhat of a, a detour here. But, you know, when I was a kid, ever since I was a kid, just very curious about how, you know, we as humans categorize things. And, you know, it's always so like crisp categorization, right? Like something belongs in this category that always seems to be not always, but oftentimes seems to be subjective. And just as an example, in, in baseball, there's a concept of an error. So a, a player makes an error that is determined subjectively by an official score. There's no crisp def- definition of what that means. It can be very arbitrary. But once it's classified as such, it has these rather large implications. There's this whole field in cognitive psychology that is focused on how humans classify things and and it's very interesting. We, we even have a, a PhD from cognitive psychology who studied this exact thing. So I'm not formally trained in it, just kind of enamored by this idea. And I bring it up because when I was at Arizona, I worked with uh, this really brilliant human being and methodologist. His name's, name was uh, Lee Sechrist. He taught me so much, but he used to hold these weekly groups called that he called EGAD. It stood for Evaluation Group of Analysis of Data. And in this group, we talk about papers. And one of the papers that came across was on something called fuzzy set theory. And I think the paper was in the medical diagnostic arena. I don't really know, but what really caught my attention was just the idea of fuzzy set theory. It was probabilistic membership as opposed to this hard uh, crisp membership into the sets. I got a little bit obsessed with that idea. And, you know, this stuff has been around for a while, so it wasn't anything new. There wasn't a lot of application to it. And so because I I started really looking into this, it really just helped me embrace Bayesian ideas and thinking probabilistically. But by this point, you know, I was into my graduate school career, the psychology department, and the stat department at Illinois didn't have a Bayesian. So I was kind of left to fend for myself, if you will. My advisor at the time was someone who your previous guest, Frank Carroll, would describe as a likelihoodist. So the research was that we were doing was in an area of tensor decomposition. So his focus was parallel factor analysis. That's what his advisor had a really created. And I think they're called CP models nowadays, but it's really just tensor decomposition. So our dissertation topic was supposed to be on fuzzy parafact modeling. And that was creating, you know, simultaneously optimizing parafact model within fuzzy clusters. And that's similar to this other method that does something very, basically the same thing, but with regression. So I called fuzzy sea lines. But unfortunately, my advisor was non-tenured in my third year, and I had to go a completely different route. And while I did not uh, use any Bayesian methods in my dissertation, it was really focused on diagnostic measures. And when usually when you're looking at diagnostic measures, you are working with two-by-two two contingency tables, and those set themselves up nicely for for Bayes' theorem. So that did play a role to a small degree, but in you know, really simple ways. And then 
as I got into my career, that's when I started actually embracing and using the methods themselves. It's all self-taught, but I haven't done a ton, but I did. My language of choice would be R and Stan. Hmm. And I did, you know, I have fit a few uh, Bayesian models when I was with LA and and a couple here in in Houston, but my experience is, is certainly quite limited. So my, what I bring to the table on the Bayesian side is the embracing of it and you know, pushing for us as an organization to adopt these methods and bring in people who are a lot smarter and a lot more capable of handling this type of data with these type of methods to help us make decisions. So that was a long-winded answer to say that I'm not a Bayesian statistician per se, but my love for probabilistic thinking is really the motivation to push for these type of methods and how we we make decisions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love that. And you seem to like the also the intellectual, like the philosophical characteristics of Bayesian statistics, like the, the way it yeah, helps you yeah, reason much. about the world that you're seeing and how to make sense of it and understand whether what you believe is true or not. Exactly. And it's so often on a continuum, the black and white thinking just doesn't really cut it. And that's really what, when I came across this idea of fuzzy set there, just, you know, here it is. This is what I've been waiting for all my life. This, this way of classification that doesn't involve strict adherence to one group or another, right? It's, it is probabilistic. Definitely super, super interesting. So I want to, before we close up the show, I I still have a few questions for you. So uh, let's continue to dig in. And I'm curious about what do you think? And actually, I have two questions that are related. Like the first one is, what do you think are the main challenges of the field Mm -hmm. of sports analytics or baseball analytics? And also, then this is related, what does the future of baseball analytics look like to you? Like, which advances are you particularly excited, exciting to you? Yeah, so the, the biggest challenge, I think, is just growth. I mentioned just the, you know, the desire to get more Bayesian statisticians working with us, people who are adept with those skills. And it can be challenging because, you know, we're, we're not only looking for people who are very talented and skilled in statistics or data science, but we're also wanting people to be, to have a solid understanding of baseball and the passion for baseball. So that is a a pairing that can be challenging to find. And we are not just competing with the other 29 teams. We're competing with trillion dollar companies like Google, Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft, Apple. I mean, that is unprecedented for baseball to have to compete with those companies. So it can be really challenging. So that, to me, that's the the biggest challenge we face for the analytics is just continuing to bring in uh, talent and keeping that talent. So that is uh, not a trivial task to solve, but we're working on it. Um, And then the second part, so you asked the future of baseball analytics, right? Yeah. Yeah. What's exciting to you? Like? Yeah. Yeah. For me, it's the, the biomechanical space. So this is the human movement data that mm. is now quite prevalent in baseball. And so really having a better understanding of the kinetic sequence and pitching and hitting 
And the kinetic sequence refers to the motion of the body. You're really starting with the legs and generating force, force that is used to, you know, throw a pitch 100 miles per hour or square up a baseball at you know, 110 miles per hour. So that, that requires a lot of, a lot of force. And it is, it is uh, unsurprisingly very complex how that force is generated. So this is something that we are starting to build an understanding of with the type of data that we're now getting, but it's, there's a long ways to go, but this is the next revolution in, in baseball, in my opinion, where pitch tracking was really the first one. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. So that's super interesting. Yeah, it really is. And that, that relies to like that relies on, on images and like pattern recognitions, stuff like that. Yeah. So there are companies that produce these, so it's, it's not necessarily being done in-house. But computer vision, deep learning models are often what they cite that they use. How much of that is accurate, I don't know, but it's based off motionless capture technology. Sorry, markerless capture technology, not motionless. Ah, markerless okay. yeah. <laughs> markerless caption, uh, capture technology, so through cameras, capturing the human movement of pitchers and, and hitters, which is... You know, a lot easier to do because they are standing in the same spot. It's a lot harder, for instance, to capture the, the movement of the runner and with a high frame rate camera. But this is a technology that has been around for a few years. And, and when I first started in baseball, it had just begun to become a thing and is now really blown up. But it's, it's still a long ways to go before teams really have a, a grasp of this. Hmm. Okay, yeah, yeah, can guess that, but active area of, of research to say, yeah, okay. It involves a, a large, large number of data. I mean, we're talking about high frame yeah. rate data and you know, hundreds of thousands of pitches a year that are captured. So it requires someone with, a, with very solid technical skills on the data side, but also knowledge of, of biomechanics. Again, a, a hard person to find. Yeah. Yeah, not easy. Okay, then uh, before we close up the show, maybe you talked about that at the beginning of the show, but yeah, maybe quickly, let's say I'm a beginner in statistics and I would like to emulate the work you do. Mm -hmm. So which skills should I develop and which mistakes should I avoid or should I make even to learn best? I like this question. I guess I think of it as what advice I would give myself yeah. when I was in school. And I would, of course, tell myself to invest in Bayesian statistics, but I'd also tell myself to invest some of my education in computer science. That's the first part. And then the second part would be to ask more questions. So hmm. on the first one, you know, I realized pretty late in my educational career just how valuable Bayesian statistics are and will continue to be. And you know, if I had realized that earlier, I would have spent a lot more time trying to understand those models and you know, my quote-unquote free time that I had as a graduate student. On the computer science side, it would have just, you know, whether it's through requirements or just the courses you take, there are a lot of courses that just haven't had a lot of impact on my career that if I could do it over again, I would replace those with courses in computer science just because of how valuable a lot of those skills are. I kind of realize that, but it was, it's hard to, to add coursework when you're already taking so much that's required. And there really wasn't an option to replace those courses with required work. So 
you know, had I really decided to push that idea, it would have probably involved staying an extra year in graduate school. So whether or not that was, I made the right decision, who knows, but that's something that I, I would have definitely thought twice about um, if I could do it over again. And then on the asking questions part, I don't, you know, I think you could think of this as either a mistake that you should avoid or a mistake that you should make. Mistake to avoid is not asking questions. The mistake to make, if you want to phrase it this way, is to ask questions. Now, it's not, I wouldn't consider it a mistake necessarily, but I think being able and being comfortable to really put yourself out there and risk, you know, the feelings of, of really stupidity, I guess, even though it's, it's probably mostly in your head. That can be challenging, but, and certainly the, the fear is legit, but really whatever fear you get or whatever insecurity in the short term is going to not come close to outweighing the benefit in the long term of continuing to ask questions, being inquisitive and curious about things. To me, that is one of the most important things that someone can do when they have those opportunities. So put yourself around people that are going to be open to, to people asking questions, be open, including questions that might challenge what they're doing, right? Now that's easier said than done, but if you can surround yourself with people like that, you're going to be in good shape. But, you know, I continue to try and ask questions as much as possible. It's still to this day can be uncomfortable to do, but it's really a very important thing. And again, like I wouldn't, I think it's a mistake to not ask those questions. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I couldn't agree it's more. A, it's a missed learning opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. Really like couldn't agree more. And it's been also my experience personally. Yeah. And since I've been, I, I've had the chance to stumble upon the the PyMC community and yeah. since then I have been able to ask a lot of apparently silly questions and surround myself with uh, people who are better than me in some dimensions where I want to improve and so that's just uh, amazing when you can do that because you learn so much more so and much more so yeah. much faster also like you feed off each other because mm -hmm. like when you see people being able to receive questions that go counter to what they are supposed mm -hmm. to think or say and not getting angry, but actually thinking about it and like not taking it personally, basically exactly and not right. identifying with the, not identifying with the, the criticism or the question, then you end up doing the same. And that's just, as we said before, one of the best environments to, to grow. Completely agree. Right. That type of culture is really something that just doesn't you know, happen by accident. It's, It's really important though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. there is a, a selection in effect in yeah. which people you take in or not mm -hmm. in, in the team. Okay, well, awesome. Essen, what that was great having you on. Of course, before letting you go, you know that I'm going to ask you the two questions I ask every guest at the end of the show. So first one, if you had unlimited time and resources, which problem would you try to solve? I know that the most common answer is, is climate change. And <laughs> I don't know how one doesn't pick climate change given the impact that it has on our, our future. Unfortunately, we don't have unlimited time to solve this problem. If I had unlimited resources, I think it would probably be poorly spent with me working on helping the climate change crisis. I, I'm not really sure what I could add to that. So I'd probably give that money to someone who could. But realistically, I guess with, with unlimited time and resources for me, I would, I would want to focus on, on sport injuries 
how do we best predict and prevent injuries in sports? And I guess specific to, to my sport, baseball, the biggest injury that we see is in the ulnar collateral ligament, which is a ligament that connects on the elbow joint. It's an elbow joint, and it's primarily an injury in pitchers. And when this injury occurs, which is usually a tear of that ligament, it requires surgery that is called Tommy John surgery. And that can leave a player out of the game for 12 to 18 months for rest and rehab. And that's a, in terms of cost to the organization, that's a huge cost. So being able to solve that, not solve it, but be able to better predict and better prevent is just a huge, huge part of what we're trying to do. And, you know, we've got a long ways to go here and you know, pointing to the, the markless data that we're getting on the biomechanics space. That's what's going to, that's what's going to help try and figure this problem out. But that, that would be it. That's a, that's a really challenging problem and a really important one in baseball. Hmm. Yeah, I can guess pretty of how passionate you are about <laughs> what you're doing. Second question. If you could have dinner with any great scientific mind, dead, alive, or fictional, who would it be? I would go with Paul Meal. So Paul Meal is, he was very inspirational in, in some of the work that I ended up doing with my dissertation. He's a clinical psychologist, or was a clinical psychologist. He ruffled a lot of feathers with some of his work in the 1950s. He, he had this little book that showed that statistical methods outperformed prediction from clinical expertise. And, you know, you can imagine the impact that that had at the time coming from a clinical psychologist. And of course, it's led to you know, a plethora of research in this area. And really, arguably, I think you could say foreshadowed the big data craze in the early 2000s. Um, so I think he's had a, a huge impact on philosophy, on, on science in general, but in particular in psychology. He also, a lot of his writing was just really incredible, really witty. He's a very smart person. I think he'd be just really interesting person to, to talk to at, at dinner and have dinner with. And I imagine that the stories that he would tell would be incredible. The wisdom that, and insight that he would share would be invaluable. And in particular, what I would want to, to ask him about is his thoughts on the replication crisis in psychology and how that's unfolded, because a lot of the, the work that he did, um, some of his colleagues that Jacob Cohen did in the 1950s and 60s and 70s, really warned about these, these questionable research practices in psychology, and you know, to the point that I don't think that he would be very surprised about the, the failure to replicate a lot of these studies in psychology. Hmm. So I'd be very curious to hear his thoughts on that. And I think that in, in general, would just be a, a very nice person to have a meal with. And so you were saying that he wrote some books or, or stuff like that, that we can maybe put in the show notes? Yeah, sure. So I think his most famous book we published in 1954, and that was uh, um, Statistical Versus Clinical Prediction. And I can send a few other papers, some of them co-authored by him, that are on this topic as well. Definitely. That's, uh, if you can put that in the, in the show notes, mm -hmm. that'd be great, I think. Awesome. Thanks a lot, SN. I mean, again, I wasn't disappointed. An episode about sports analytics is, <laughs> is always something I enjoy. And, and the topic is so large and broad and so many 
interesting avenues of research for statisticians, as you said, that uh, I could do a lot of them. As usual, I put resources and a link to your website in the show notes for those who want to dig deeper. Thank you again, SN, for taking the time and being on this show. Thank you, Alex. You bet. Take care. Bye. Bye. This has been another episode of Earning Patient Statistics. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcatcher or podchaser, and visit learnbasedstats.com for more resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes that will help you reach true patient state of mind. That's learnbasedstats.com. Our theme music is Good Patient by Baba Brinkman with MC Lars and Megaran. Check out his awesome work at bababrinkman.com. I'm your host, Alex Endora. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Endora, like the country. You can support the show and unlock exclusive benefits by visiting patreon.com slash learnbasedstats. Thanks so much for listening and for your support. You're truly a... Good Bayesian, and change your predictions after taking information in. And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing, let's adjust those expectations. Let me show you how to be a good Bayesian. Change calculations after taking fresh data in. Those predictions that your brain is making. Let's get them on a solid foundation.